Good day! Welcome to the Phalanx of Pubescence. At its best. I'm Karri. He's Henrik. This is a film podcast from Two Finns. Henrik will be a Master of Arts. I studied audiovisual media. How's it going? Well, we did get the snow back. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to so, be in the southern parts of Europe. Yep, it's practically summer in Lapland at this point. Yeah, whatever, Finland. <clears throat> Henrik, why is this film in our menu? I, I I guess because you've seen it once or twice and in your childhood and you have a nostalgic vibe towards <laughs> it. Because that's for sure is the case in my part. For like a big part of the episodes, it has been like this, I guess. In this case, however, this is a listener recommendation from our guest who was in the Horses of God episode. Anas, thank you. <laughs> this is apparently his just about favorite movie or it, so. It, it, yeah, it only took us like, what, 500 episodes until we got to make the episode about the quest recommendation. All in good time, Henrik. All in good time. This is probably my second time I've seen this film. Yeah, it was... In school, I believe, I saw it for the first time, either the Finnish class or the English class. At least my English teacher, who I still keep in contact with, vows that uh, she didn't make us watch this film. So I will blame my Finnish teacher for watching a film about American poets in America. Yeah, or not, not so much about poets. And not even that much about poetry, seeing that the title is Dead Poet Society, but I, I guess more about one or three individuals. Yeah, what an exhilarating title, Henrik. Dead Poets Society. Like, this title plus the theme that you get as the idea when you kind of read the description is that this would be the movie to avoid. Like, poets doing some romantic and poetic stuff in woods in weird costumes it's like an alarm bell don't watch this film i i, I would actually watch that film <laughs> i guess we did I, I i guess you also had the whole different take on you know the all the philosophy classes that you had to take what what philosophy classes uh, the mandatory high school philosophy classes you had to take at least one course hmm Except I didn't, because I didn't go to high school, even. Okay, you got me beaten there. <laughs> Went straight to vocational school, like the good rebel. On a hindsight, even though high school sounds like a big waste of time, earning-wise sense could be, like, that's up to millions of interpretations, but I tried to get some kind of a skill that I could work on right away, like audiovisual media which I did jack shit with and went to IT to Poland. Yeah, well, you, you, I still believe that the audiovisual in the background might have helped you to land the job in Poland. You're actually right about that. Yeah, I mean, in my experience, high school is 
pretty much a waste of time unless you are actually interested in continuing in academia and mm. taking, for example, the university route. For life, becoming a professor. Yeah, or even, you know, I, I don't know, do you have to, you know, achieve the professor level, but uh, whether high school does help you maybe the most is in the university studies. And getting into a university, that is a moment where I would say that the high school background plays the biggest role. Mm. Well, a movie about poets in a school with Robin Williams. This sounds like a catastrophe in the making. Basically, Robin Williams gets lost and resurfaces in a highly prestigious American boarding school in the 50s. Uh, as far as the scriptwriter at least hints, completely out of code of conduct and a plot device ensues. Henrik. Well, that, that is quite aggressive way to actually put it to words. Well, I can make it more aggressive if you want. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm getting the vibes that you really weren't on board with Dead Poet Society. We will see in this podcast. <laughs> History and background of the film, Henrik. The Todd's character was written by Tom Schulman, with Tom Schulman in mind. Yes, this is written by Tom Schulman, as Tom Schulman himself in the Tom Schulman apartment. And what am I talking about? Um... His other credits are Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, he also directed it, and Holy Man, starring Eddie Murphy as a TV evangelist. Yeah, uh, perhaps his best respected work outside of Dead Poets is What About Bob, starring Bill Murray. It's a comedy where he is a psychiatrist who loses his mind when he's chased down by his own patient. Sounds actually quite, kind of fun. I think I've seen it somewhere down the road. I, I would almost make the case that most well-known film from his screenplays outside of Dead Poets would be Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, well, that, that was kind of a major deal back in the 1980s, early 1990s. And that's actually one that eventually got a sequel. Yeah. Isn't there, like, gazillion movies with Honey, I Did Something with Something? Uh, I... If I remember correctly, the original lineup is, like, two movies. The first one is is The Shrinking, and the second one is... Did they shrink themselves? Honey, I supersized the kids. Well, well something like that happens in the very end, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, but... I think movies that start like Honey and The Coma. These are the kind of movies that you start without a script. Without a script, Henrik. You create the title first. Honey, mm-mm-mm, mm-mm-mm. And that's when you write the script, based on that. Well, even the writer Tom Schumann admits that in real life the Carpe Diem stuff that we see in Dead Poets Society doesn't always work, but... The film itself is making that point anyway, as we will see. Editor of this film is William M. Anderson. Other works are Say It in Russian, 2007. Have you seen it? I guess I've missed that one. Robocop 2. Have you seen it? I guess, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, who haven't? And Truman Show. Yeah. And director is Peter Weir. Born in Sydney, Australia. Very open to 
the writer's concerns, as I heard, very friendly director. Directed also one of my great favorites, at least like 15 years ago, Master and Commander. Although I remember the ending is kind of non-ending, but nevertheless it's about the journey. What did you think about Master and Commander? I thought it was okay. I came into the film like two years late, so the hype had been completely ongoing before I even managed to see it. And well, maybe it wasn't exactly on the hype levels, but it still was extremely enjoyable movie. And I did appreciate the maritime battle as a theme, since that is something that you kind of haven't seen done ever since the Hornblower series ended. Mm. Yeah, I remember that it was probably the New Year's Day or something like that, and I went to theater to see Master and Commander with a friend. I remember that my friend had some serious problems staying awake in the theater. Okay, that's that's fine, because we had slept like probably two hours, so... But I thoroughly, thoroughly loved the film. I mean, it has this very meditative quality going on. And it's about uh, about waiting and like what happens when you are waiting for things to happen on the ship, how the, how the life is there. But it's been a long time since I've seen it. And also he has directed The Truman Show. So there are connections with these editors and directors and as you would expect. He also directed Witness, starring Harrison Ford as the cop protecting an Amish. Also did The Way Back from 2010. It's a story about Siberian gulag escapees on their way to India for freedom. It's his latest film. The guy is putting on some age at this point, so I don't know if he will be returning to the world of cinema. Did you see The Way Back? I did see it. I... I... Yes, I caught it on DVD after the theatrical release. It's basically been the story with me with all of Peter Weir's films that I've been the last one to join the party. Always kind of felt that I should have seen this one on the big screen, but then again, somehow, every time the dude releases a movie to the cinemas, I somehow managed to miss it. Mm. Would be kind of nice to have, like, maybe a month of only jail-escaping-related films. Wouldn't that be fun? Here at the laboratory. Are you trying to somehow imply here that you feel trapped by making this podcast? (laughs) Could be, or it's just that some of my, my great favorites from years back are Midnight Express and... Also, this Russian film that we are going to touch sometime soon, called Prisoner of the Mountains. So there's some material for that. So basically what you are trying to do is build up a theme month. With, Why not? With, with basically doing in the minimum requirement of work, episode and film-wise. Since you already have crossed the one week off with the Prisoner of Mountain, and then you just have to slap on three other prisoner escape films to accompany it. Well, wouldn't you say that a week after week just changing the theme from horror to action to drama to porn to who knows what in this podcast is sometimes a little bit of a daunting task emotionally. It it, it most definitely is a daunting task and something that 
well, it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't type of situation. Hmm. The, the last time we had a theme here <laughs> outside of the International Film Challenge, it wasn't exactly the smooth sailing. I think it was more smooth sailing for us than for our listeners, so apologies for that. But yeah, I see my co-host is suffering from theme allergy still after this little stint. That's okay. Cinematography is by John Seal. He has done cinematography for Mad Max Fury Road, the new one from 2015. Then he has done The English Patient, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, City of Angels as well. Has worked with a lot of Australian crews and directors. That kind of happens when you are an Australian. And he has won uh, countless of awards. Respected maker. That's kind of to give you the basics surrounding the crew of Dead Poet Society. Henrik, are you a poet? No, not the slightest. Not even a Finnish rapper. And that is a real downgrade from being a poet. Goddamn, now is your great chance to... Search your hard drive for all those pathetic poems that you wrote when you were a teenager. And bring them to life. Uh, yeah, well, I, I could do that. Except that basically all the quote-unquote poems I did was just finished translations of the lyrics of Linking Park, so... <laughs> that would probably be worth of going through in this podcast. Or then not, you know. At times we actually must make the process of listening us somehow at least a bit easier for our listeners. <laughs> I actually now did get stuck into my hard drive to look if if I have anything, but maybe that will have to wait. Maybe that's for the best. Actors! Robin Williams, known for playing the genie in Disney's Aladdin. Uh, uh, also known for such classics as Flopper, the Cadillac Man. Jack at the live action version of Popeye. Flubber. I had already forgotten that. I wanted it to be forgotten forever. It was force fed to me at school because we of course had to have these VHS days when somebody from our students in the primary school had the bright idea to watch Flubber and uh, all the horror and the traumas. I guess I was a different kind of kid, Henrik, because the other ones seemed to be enjoying it very much. Well, when it comes to Flopper, I also remember hating it from the bottom of my heart. Yeah, I guess that's where my traumas from Robin Williams are coming from. And mostly I, I have had a big problem with Robin Williams. I do not like his... Well, it doesn't matter what I don't like about him very much, does it? I think we need to have just more positivity and more flowers and sunshine in this podcast, so let's leave it be. I, on my part, I never had a problem with Robin Williams. Maybe because I have seen so many still good works from the guy, but you gotta have to admit that the dude managed to make or appear in like over 100 films. So there is a extremely lot of schlock also included in those 100 films. Always good for the bank account. You will... Robin did suffer from suicidal depression. So that may also kind of play part in some of the choices. I have to say though that... I just have to. I have to say that the Finnish Vesamatti Loire was like a gazillion times better 
than Robin Williams as the genie. Yeah. As a genie. But yeah. that would be where I'm kind of drawing the line. Williams is also known for Good Morning Vietnam and Mrs. Doubtfire, I'm afraid. One Hour Photo, Good Will Hunting and, oh god, that unfortunate film called Jumanji, which I also had to watch at school. These people really didn't have a good taste in movies. Well, I would say that Mrs. Doubtfire and Jumanji weren't that bad. They were not great, but for what they were aiming to be, they at least they, you know, succeeded adequately. Unlike, for example, Flopper. Well, at least in Mrs. Doubtfire we have the young Pierce Brosnan for a second. Yeah, luckily the film did manage to survive that. Yeah, Robin Williams is also famous for killing himself, unfortunately. It's it's just sad, and it's so kind of unbelievable. You know, you do a career in varied films, and you still can't keep yourself together enough to pull through the hard times. Even after doing Carpe Diem movies like this, it's just... The human mind is mind-boggling. Um, that kind of a is, I've come to understand, is kind of a... The typical problem with many who do comedy, that even though they are extremely funny on screen or stage and they constantly put on the happy face, many of them behind the scenes are actually suffering from depression. I think this is one of my problems with Robin Williams. Maybe I should have called 911 like long before he did hang himself, because the guy for in many occasions, doesn't seem very happy. He pulls on the happy face, but I think it looks fake for the most of the time. At least that's that's how I feel about it. Okay. To me, he always kind of managed to sell the performance. Well, or not always. There, there were those times when the movie really didn't shine through, even with Williams. Yeah, hard to say if it's just the facial features and... I'm reading too much into things. Who knows? Ethan Hawke is playing Todd. He will soon play Nikola Tesla in the film Tesla that is coming out, I believe, this year. For the most part, he's known for the Before trilogy. Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight. And in Boyhood, he acted as the father and Robert's Sean Leonard is playing Neil, known for playing Dr. Wilson in the House series from beginning to end of its run. He did that, and then he has kind of had all kinds of TV projects ever since. Also appeared in Swing Kids, about kids listening to US swing music in Nazi Germany, with some grave consequences. Josh Charles is playing Knox, known also for, I don't know, Henrik Muppets from Space, and a lot of TV. Yeah, well, a lot of TV. I guess the last bigger film he made would have been SWAT in early 2000s. Hmm. Then we have James Waterstone playing Pitts. Lots of TV roles. Gart Wood Smith. Who played Neil's father, Mr. Perry, in the film. I guess most known for 
being the bad guy in Robocop and the dad in that 70s show. Cool. Would it be scene by scene, Henrik? Oh, I guess we have to actually do that eventually. If you insist. Well, this is the cast of characters. We have Neil Perry. We have Todd Anderson, kind of the lead character of the film. We have Cameron, the orange-haired guy. Well, the token Judas of the story. Okay. And the mix character has the glasses. Then there is Charlie, or as we know him later, Nwanda. And Knox is the girl charmer. And we have the pits, the, the kind of a tall guy. Excellent descriptions. So, we start off with this kind of um, inauguration. The opening of the semester. Mm, the ceremony in which we hear the four words. Tradition, honor, discipline, excellence. Or in other words, travesty, horror, decadence, excrement. And speaking teacher is kind of using this old American... American English uh, Mr. Porteus has resigned and he's now replaced by Mr. John Kidding or Robin Williams and Todd's brother was the finest of the school apparently and now Todd is taking on the shoes big shoes to fill and we get more establishing in the next scene they move into the new room at the campus Neil and Todd we get to know Neil and Neil did some chemistry at the summer school. Nerdiness of the character is established. And father of Neil comes in and wants son to drop the school annual. Yep, that's what happens. In school, we meet the teacher. And carpe diem mentality is established. The stiffness of the traditional teaching is established with uh, short shots of the classrooms. And I love the notion that Keating makes about us all dying, yeah? And how he encourages the students to see themselves in the old pictures of the students who have already left this earth. And uh, I would say still at this age, it's kind of hard to make kids understand this reality. Well, it's hard to make grown-ups understand the reality. But they take it pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of the undeniable facts of life, which everybody kind of knows, even though most of us, I guess, try to live in in a sort of denial. Mm. I like the scene. Uh, Yeah, I I kind of liked it too. Even though the story kind of taking a shorthand here to get the message point is kind of obvious, much like in the very opening of the film where the school motto... The tradition, honor, discipline, excellence is brought up. You can see that the film uses very strong elements like the motto and like the fact that basically all the previous classes you have been shown have been very uptighty and very strict in the way how the teaching is done so that now that Keating is giving his lecture... He really comes off as, as somehow extremely different simply because he cracks a few jokes and takes the class outside of the classroom. This is going to be a complicated talking point in this episode because this, of course, this film immediately appeals for 
young people who are kind of anti-authority. But then again, I, I really do love some of the old values and the strictness and the clarity or the clarity of what you're going to do next and how everything is like fine-tuned. Here's what we have to offer for you as a student and here's what you're going to learn and this is how you're going to operate, period. And then we have this Robin Williams guy who just pops up in the 50s and messes up the entire thing. On the other hand, Henrique does introduce some interesting and revitalizing ways of learning. On the other hand, he is just kind of a rebel and not even respecting the curriculum in any way. Well, he is basically respecting the curriculum. I mean, in the end, it is made the point that he did cover most of the topics that were in the curriculum. He just may not have given them as much weight as the rest of the school board would have wanted. But with the Dead Poets, there is kind of the point that even if you've never seen Dead Poets Society, you still very likely kind of might have seen Dead Poets Society, because this is kind of a, a film genre of its own inside of the drama films, which is kind of the enlightened individual against the institution. And the enlightened individual is kind of one of the pet peeves of Hollywood in the way where to take the story. It's a storyline that has been done quite many times in different settings, with different names. I mean, Robin Williams himself has actually done the same storyline more than once. You take the individual out of the school and you put him against the Vietnam War backdrop, you get Good Morning Vietnam. You put him in the hospital world, you get Patch Adams. You change the sex but keep the school setting. The school setting is more urban, that's Dangerous Minds. With Michelle Pfeiffer, or you once again, you know, return back to the 50s, and what you have is Mona Lisa Smile. And the structure of, of the enlightened individual stories is kind of ironically, it is so strict that once you've seen two or three films w with the storyline, you kind of have seen them all in one sense, to a point where the major difference outside of, you know, the setting of the films becomes on the one or two endings you can have with the story. There's the ending type A, which is the one they pull on on the more realistic enlightened individual films where the institution eventually wins over the individual. He is let go of the institution he is taking part of. Like, for example, the ending of the Dead Poets when Keating is let go, he's fired from the teaching position. And then you get the happy ending, and there, there the happiness comes from the notion that he did manage to reach some of his pupils, and still kind of won the institution that way. Or then there is the second one where the individual completely wins over the institution in an official way, which is usually the ending that the more comedic and more lighthearted and more unrealistic depictions of the storyline take. Like, for example, in Patch Adams, where Patch Adams is eventually sued to the court by the hospital world, and the court actually makes the case in favor of Patch Adams. Excellent. It is kind of hard to identify yourself and the people who have deceased in black and white. There is this lack of connection 
when you see black and white film, black and white pictures. It takes a little bit more effort to get your mind into there that they didn't exactly live in a black and white world. <laughs> there were colors, they were just like you and me. Now even the actors of Dead Poets Society are kind of older gentlemen. And yeah, that's just amazing. This film is almost as old as I am. Life goes on. Then we have the shower scene. I guess there's nothing much there. And knocks at the Danburys. And before the times of Facebook, this is an excellent way to network yourself with other people who have been in touch with this school institution. Which I guess still is a major thing in, for example, in the universities in America, which still kind of relies back on the frat house culture and the secret societies that exist inside the universities, which basically all of them revolve around the same theme, that you have this shared background, the same school, the same frat that you went through, and that is supposed to give you the networks, this feeling of joint companionship, which will eventually help you, for example, to land a job. And next scene involves a connection to the scene at the Danbury's, talking about the most beautiful girl ever met. But basically the first and only girl you actually seen in the film up until that point, which kind of can raise the question exactly how many girls has Nox seen before he makes his mind on who is the most beautiful girl in the world. Everything's subjective, Henrik, so who knows. And the radio is being built, which is said to be a radar, yeah. Which is actually a radio being built, which we will see later in the film. Yeah, one of the shared comedic moments of the film. And a scene that highlights more of the fact that later on in the film when Keating starts to talk about and starts to teach the carpe diem mm. to the students, you kind of hear you see the chosen students that will follow carpe diem during the course of the film since they are, in a way, they are already rebelling against the system or the institution in some way. In this case, smoking and building the not-allowed radio. Yeah, this is kind of a laugh-out-loud moment when reading the Understanding Poetry by Dr. J. Evans Pritchard, PhD. At the time this was probably written, it's a time of when there was a lot of this kind of self-proclaimed experts on a whatever subject. Uh, I would uh, say that, that that is a problem we are facing even more today. But at the time, if you made a claim, it would be taken for a fact for many, many years. Like, for example, that... I don't know, that you need to eat some specific food to clear your anus. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, that, that is a sti thing that still happens today. And today it's accompanied by, you know, the alternative medication and flat earth and, you know, you <laughs> name it. Yeah. Yeah, these are actually nothing to really joke about. These are extremely unfortunate phenomena that have polluted the actual information that we do have. And, you know, people are starting to get smallpox and measles and all that. 
yeah, I, I would almost make the case that it is problem that has always existed in some way or form. The problem itself is not a new one. It just hasn't been as prominent as it is today, but there has been PhDs who have made pretty incredible statements, as well as there is the science world that has failed in one way or the another, or in more ways than one previously, and you know, the problem we are facing today is just that the social media and internet and the easy connectivity has just kind of given the platform to others in a sense that it's not a new problem, it's just there is more participants taking part in the problem today than there was, like for example, 1950s. Yeah, and also the social media algorithms, I think, play a huge role here. If you read something about anti-vaccination, then your whole feed in Facebook will be about anti-vaccination. And I don't think this is a problem that you can really solve. Even you can you can try. And they're trying, I guess, right now, it, there, there's this campaign for getting rid of information that is clearly inaccurate by the scientific consensus. But they rip the understanding of poetry. Teacher comes in, barges in, and uh, notices the situation, is surprised about the the rowdy-looking events. And later in the Isit cafeteria, there's this Keating's own poem has a response to the teacher. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny moment. And I like how the teacher is not getting provocated about calling the teacher a cynic. He just responds with a poem, and then, but only in the dreams can men be truly free. Twas always thus, and always thus will be. And he says, is it Tennyson? No, kidding. Now the boys are going through the yearbooks and finding out the, about the Dead Poets Society, or DPS, and discussing it with kidding later on at the yard. Which, when, when you finally come to understand what Dead Poets Society is you realize that it really wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, it, it is a secret club in the film. Yeah, but it, it is interesting that really there is nothing to it. Like in 2019, in, I think in any school, there would be no problem at all at, uh, for having a dead poet society every evening somewhere like during midnight or late evening having some moment of relaxation outside of your school hours so in today's context this is kind of funny how big of a deal is made of it especially because it's kind of supporting their studies that it is but at, at the same time it kind of ties into the whole institution being an institution theme of the film mm. i mean the institution in dead boys society is so unforgiving and so uncompromising and so kind of a flatheading all throughout that. The boarding school of the film, the poetry circle, could kind of be a big deal in a way that it is, as pointed out in the film, kind of unorthodox to read certain poets or do certain things, for example, in your teaching. That it is. And that is kind of a, one of the... I don't know if, if issues is the right word to use, but still, one of the big things in the films like Dead Poet Society, in the enlightened individual films, where the conflict usually is always 
the enlightened individual versus the traditions. In the enlightened individual versus the orthodox way of doing things. The, that's simply not how we do things here. Point of view of the institution. And when you look at the films themselves, it more often than not, you actually realize that the unorthodox methods of the individual. In Dead Poet Society's case, the teaching of Mr. Keating, especially when you look at on today's eyes, it really is not that unorthodox. Mr. Keating doesn't do anything that radical throughout the film itself. Even though this, the institution seems to be a making a huge point how unorthodox he's being. Still maybe he could have more of the boundaries between the teacher and the students. I mean, they are, after all, walking on the desk of Mr. Keating. But it is merely just an, you know, one-time allowed exercise given in one class. It is not a recurring event. Yeah, no, but, but I'm, in, I'm in, playing in, the devil's advocate here. Yeah, but to be the persecutor here, I would say that a modern Finnish teacher is even more open and even more allowing with the students than what Mr. Keating is being here in the film, when it comes, for example, how approachable he is to his students. I wonder if my old English teacher would allow this kind of a behavior that Mr. Keating is allowing in the 50s. Please let me know. You mean that she didn't allow you to approach her during the school breaks? Yeah, of course, but we what, didn't... What, was didn't she kind of pushing you away with, you know, with a stick? We were her first class ever, but we definitely didn't walk on her desk. There but, were but, certain boundaries there, I would say. Well, once again, you know, the fact that Keating allows them to walk on his desk on one class when he's making a point doesn't mm. mean that it would be allowed within the normal boundaries of Keating. It's a singular special event that takes place and not something that is a norm. I would say, and I think she would agree with me, I would say as long as the relationship between the teacher and the student stays respectful for towards one another, and if there's a great communication, and if this sort of, an, let's say, unorthodox way of teaching as it is depicted in this film helps in achieving better communication with your students, then hell, why not? And I think she would pull it off as well walking on the table. Hard to say on my part, because the, the schools I took on that age were kind of a shitholes, and the respectable attitude between teacher and the student most definitely was non-existent. Then Neil convinces Todd to join the DPS that they have decided to resurrect in their own form, as nobody really knows I would say, what the original Dead Poet Society was exactly about, because it's like two sentences that Mr. Keating gives in the film about it. But they have their own version, and they go to the same location, and boys run for DPS. Funny scene where they give cookies to the dog to escape the corridor. Well, the first meeting does involve the sharing of the food, and in that sense, kind of a breaking the communal bread which is an instance that we actually don't see taking part in the later meetings of the club. Mm, yeah, we are just to assume that it's staying as part of the tradition, I would say. 
I did kind of raise my eyebrow when Neil did suggest that, hey, we should do this DPS tonight. And how willing his friends are to join the DPS after all. It takes some convincing, but also granted that there is one guy who says that isn't that kind of kind of a boring idea or something along the lines. And it was also stated by the screenwriter that this could be kind of a hard to pull off, at least in, in, in the film, that okay, these young teenagers are willing to actually go to a cave in the middle of the night to read poems to each other. But at least in the film they reinforce the scene by showing that they have also other kinds of activities other than the poem reading. Like they make the poems into kind of a rap form. For example for this Then I had religion, then I had a vision I could not turn from the revel in derision Then I saw the Congo creeping through the black Cutting through the forest with the golden drag Or something like that. Yeah, the DPS, it is a form of rebellion on the student's part towards the institution. And a rebellion that does not in itself actively attack against the institution. It is a secret club which is not allowed by, by the boarding school itself. So them forming the club and them escaping to the cave at night is something that is rebellious in that sense, but at the same time they are not still breaking, for example, the school rules during the daytime that much, and they are not actively, for example, going against the teachers, they are not going against the school itself on that many occasions. There, there are few instances that happened throughout the film where they actually take the line further and actively do something that really is under the teacher's nose and is very strongly against the school institution. But the poetry club in itself, the nightly meetings in themselves, are mild version of teenage rebellion. So in, in that sense, you kind of can see where the first spark to revitalize dead poet society can come from in these surroundings, but... I also have to admit on the same note that forming a secret underground poetry club really is something that would take some really hard persuasion to get the hormonally extremely active teenagers to get involved and interested in. Yeah, there's the careful line that you have to walk when you make a film about teenagers. Then you really have to under understand teenagers. Obviously everybody has been a teenager at some point. But it seems to be so very easy to forget how it really is. Or even to read correctly into the correct face of how the current teenagers are. What really interests them. So as a, as a director and a screenwriter you have a huge responsibility to play this correctly. Because you're either going to make them too mature you're going to make them unnatural or you're going to get it right yeah that, that, that is something where a lot of the teenage and school dramas kind of a fumble it yeah. i must say of course when it comes dead poet society itself the film there is also the notion that well as an audience member you kind of have to try to put yourself in the mindset of the late 1950s boarding school and this mm. elite academy 
which of course is something that I can believe has been a completely different world from the school institution that you and me have kind of faced when we were on that age. Yeah, but then again, good to remember that teenagers are still always teenagers. So certain things always stay the same, even though it's kind of hard to think like that or kind of connect with what could have the life been. At least in some way, in in some form. Yeah, I, I could also believe that some parts of being a teenager are kind of a universal and carry over, you know, from decade to decade, from country to country. And I, I guess I also kind of raised an eyebrow on the point of exactly how enthusiastic the students in that poet society seems to be about the poetry. And, you know... Basically, just revitalizing a poetry club. Yeah, then again, that's kind of what they are studying. And this is a really interesting talking point, really. Like, outside of the school, what would be their interests? You didn't have video games, you didn't have internet and constant distractions. You would probably be reading books, dating girls, playing games outside, playing cards or board games smoking cigars, drinking alcohol, what else is there? But then again, you also have to take a note that the way how learning your mother tongue is depicted in American films, where they are studying English in an English-speaking country, so it's basically the same as us studying Finnish. It is kind of a extremely different from, you know, from the lectures that you and I have gone through. I mean... Basically, in my school years, studying Finnish most definitely did not involve reading poetry, reading Shakespeare, and trying to analyze what the poet is trying to say, or even going that deep into any form of literature. It was mostly, at least for me, it was very much about going through the grammar, having that mandatory book you had to read, and then... Basically writing a two-page essay about the said book in which you just went through the main plot points and told everyone what happened in the book in order to prove that you had read it. Then you look at how, you know, studying English, once again the mother tongue is depicted in American films, where it always appears that every single class you have is taking a deep look into poetry or taking a deep look into some kind of a masterwork of American literature. I do remember that in the primary school where we had a very, very enthusiastic Finnish teacher. We would read together, I would say, quite a lot of Finnish literature. The problem I had was that we didn't concentrate enough on the classical literature. We were reading some of the newer literature, and that would be fine, of course, if the language would be up to par, but I felt that the language that you often have in these books that are trying to appeal to the young audience is downright awful. It's very kind of a street language, so what you learn in that in word-wise, literary-wise, I think it's the value is really low. So I wanted to have more seven brothers and stuff like that. So I just go back to the basics. I especially 
don't like books that try to appeal to young audience and they are written by a 50 something year old who has no idea how what people like what the teenagers do like to read and that's kind of how how I felt about the current teenage Finnish literature okay that that's very interesting difference in in the school history in that case because in those secondary schools that I went through There most definitely was nothing of the sort taking part. The teachers really couldn't give a rat's ass, basically, in trying to, you know, get you involved with the class in that sense. Mm. Or in a way how it was in your case. Then we have a scene where Neil tells to Todd that he really wants to become an actor. Like, really. And that's where the idea starts. There is a position open for a school play and he wants to show his talents there and even uh, fakes a letter that is supposed to be coming from his father showing his acceptance and recommendation of him to become the actor of the show which later backfires and there's the poet came at the front lawn they kick the ball and say some part of the poem Once again, one of these unorthodox teaching methods. Extremely unorthodox, yeah. Yeah, which most definitely would raise an eyebrow, especially in an institution that really prides itself in tradition. As they almost every time seem to be doing when dealing with this type of film, when it's set in the America of the days gone by, to the 50s and 60s era of America. Todd mm. rips up his own poem just before the class and tells to the teacher that he has nothing to offer for the class one of the most lovable scenes of the film is when he just drags the guy Todd in front of the class and says to tells him to to say out loud Yop! and he finally does it and kind of conquers his own fears and then there is the example of taking some inspiration of one photograph of an old guy with a beard and just say whatever comes into his mind from that. At this point I have to say, really I have to say, I wish I had had somebody like this as a teacher that really doesn't put you down after your mistakes. He just trusts you that you can do it. Okay, because for, for me that was something that I kind of had to learn on my own. And I, on my end, I met those kind of teachers after leaving the secondary school and in the later parts of my academic track. Well, at least you're learning at some point. That's the most important thing. I do feel I have a lot of regrets that I didn't do enough carpe diem when I was in the primary school. Would have saved a lot of time. So are you trying to make it up to, to up to yourself now? Are are you following the Corp Diem ideology today, or are you still holding yourself back? Oh, there it is—the bad apple plot point of this podcast episode. Yeah, I'm doing my best, Henrik. For the last almost the entirety of my life, I've been trying to get rid of all the negative feelings. I have to say that. All the time, my family environment hasn't been exactly the shining example of support or positivity. I had to learn a lot of things on my own. How to turn things into more positive energy. Because at the end of the day, 
there are two options for you. You can be a sad, turmoiled, negative loader who doesn't enjoy life to the max. Or then you can be the guy who turns everything to as positive situation as possible. And what is there to lose? You, re you really should. Seize the day, dear listener. By drinking wine every once in a while. No, but Henrik, does it come easy for you to seize the day? Uh, most definitely not. I'm more in the sad and pathetic loner. End of your point. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that if you enjoy that. Fortunately, I have had a lot of positive inspiration in my life in the recent years. And you know, that that, that is a really good point. You can either smile as much as possible and turn even the bleak situation into something positive or you just succumb to your sadness which do you choose henrik i i guess you know i'm the one who succumbs to my sadness it's not an easy game no it's not it's not but i try i try i'm really jealous for people who do get some birth given special skills that make them more likable around humans by default so they don't need to go through all this trouble of adjusting and learning how to be your best learning how to be yourself and what the hell does it all mean being yourself it's a big balancing act then there is the dead poet society gathering once again in the cave and it's the saxophone edition knocked tells everybody after the nice saxophone moment that he has had enough he will call the girl of his dreams chris and off they go to a payphone phone call from Knox to chris takes place and it seems to go quite well which is followed by the courtyard march i don't know but i've been told i need to read a bunch of poems with this robin williams guy and once again, Robin Williams is being watched through the windows for his unorthodox methods. Which could kind of deserve a orthodox mention because he is at least playing the military style during this... Okay, they start to make a lot of funny movements afterwards, so it's not very militaristic. No, and the way how basically the school itself works throughout the film, you know, you would take it that the school would be very on board with the militaristic style of teaching. Mm. Fear not, our listeners. One of the best scenes of the film is on the way. It's the birthday of Todd. Todd sits in loneliness around the campus. Has received a birthday gift from his parents. It's the same gift that he got last year. Poor bugger. I really like how actually this scene when Neil picks up the desk and describes it to Todd. This whole moment is improvised. And it's great, it's great. It's so on character still that you can't even tell in my opinion. Todd finally throws the birthday desk away and there's this line oh don't worry we'll get another one next year that was a laugh out loud moment great stuff great stuff that was genuinely funny yeah the youth actors all together are surprisingly good in dead poet society especially w with cases like for example robert's son leonard who is still making one of his earlier roles here in the film 
This is an important bonding scene between Neil and Todd before Neil kind of bites the bullet. And then we get to DPS meeting and once again, but this time with Gloria and Tina in the cave. It seems that Charles or Nuanda has kind of gone overboard with this whole seize the day and he, he seems to be seizing the entire team at the DPS and gaining authorship and control of the DPS concept and says that he wants to write an article to the boarding school's magazine to point out that Charles Nuanda wants some girls in the campus therefore and thereby exposing the entire Dead Poet Society concept. So in other words it's the time where we have to move on the plot and uh, Nuwanda has decided that it's time to move on the plot by force. Many ways here in the film you kind of see that this and Neil's acting ambitions are basically the two drivers that the plot has when it comes to actually finally reaching a conflict within the film or reaching a conflict that has lasting consequences in the story. Henrik, the film aside, are you happy? Are you happy with your life? I really don't know. Some days, yeah, at times. It should come more easier for us Finns to be happy. It's really hard to be spontaneous and happy when you're surrounded by people who are de facto not happy. It's, it's, I, I feel it every time when I come from the sunnier countries like Spain back to Finland and oh god, like, <laughs> how do you survive in this country when you just come to the Helsinki airport and already you're faced by this bus driver from the airport to the city that doesn't even want to greet you like come on like it's not that hard just don't give me that sad face but that that, that, that is a you know a traditional Finnish way and there's nothing good about it you, you make through your life by grinding your teeth and taking it like a man i actually do grind teeth at night henrik and it's really not good for you thanks finnish society for that disease as well so Nuwanda wants to get the plot going, so he writes a profane story for girls' admittance to Welton for the Welton's Honor publication. And also it involves about the DPS. And Nuwanda, or Charles, starts to behave as the leader of the DPS and signs the article as DPS without the other members' approval, Henrik. My goodness. And then there is the gathering where the like the head teacher doesn't agree with this and wants to know immediately who are the members of the DPS. There's the discussion about unorthodox teaching methods with Mr. Nolan and Mr. Keating. Keating completely disapproves of Nuwanda's actions, at least there's that. And Neil's father finds out about the acting of Neil and disapproves it completely. This father is really, really something. Neil and Kidding then talk privately about acting ambition of Neil, and Neil seems to take a bike after this conversation to go talk with his father, but um, in a later scene we realize that Neil is not exactly telling the truth to Mr. Kidding, saying that his father has now approved the acting session, which he has not. 
it's unbelievable how hard for like a hard-working student such as Neil it's so hard for him to just face his father and say something he just can't do any of it well in his defense he would still have to be facing the biggest badass of Robocop so in that sense you know I would also think twice about raising any objections to you know the direct orders And then Knox appears at Chris's school for poem and flowers, which she doesn't take very kindly, at least first, or that's, that's how she suggests it, and explains to friends in a great scene that Chris said nothing. It wasn't the point. She said nothing. But goddamn, carpe diem, Henrik. He did it. He did it. Yeah, that he most definitely did. And... As seen later on in the film, it kind of did pay off. In this case it did. In this case, yeah. It could have been really lethal. The guy had already been beaten up at the party and then trying to get the girl of somebody else. Like, (laughs) that's really risky business. Then again, it appears it's once again, you know, the old familiar case of true love on the first sight. Boys are dressing up. Indian warrior symbol for virility is drawn by Charles or Nuanda on his chest. Chris appears at Knox's school now and explains to Chris that if she joins in the play, he promises to leave her alone, Henrik. So that is a fair assessment. And then the play happens, Henrik, and father comes to the play, missing the best part, of course. Not that it would matter, because he's not entirely enthusiastic about the fantastic acting of his son. Who cares? He drags Neil out of the play. I suppose this is the perfect time to talk about the original script, Henrik. So, in the original script... In the original script, the dad of Neil is more evil. Too evil. He draws Neil away from the play. During the play, although not having Neil's father dragging Neil out of the play during play, sort of affects the efficacy of the suicide to a degree. Would you agree? Because it's not as powerful as when you just finish the play and then you go home. And I think Neil had plenty full of options there, but he's very old-fashioned and decides that his dad is the god. Uh, that he does. I mean, that that is the major downfall of Neil as a character, or leads to his downfall. Because other main characters in the story have repeatedly brought up the point that he actually should just try to have a talk with his dad. Try to make his case to his dad. And Neil repeatedly refuses to do that, out of both feeling inferior in relation to his dad and I guess also from fear towards his father. When it came to the school annual, I kind of respected Neil for not getting into a fight with his father. We also know that Neil is a really overworking student, so it's suggested. So that's fine and dandy, but not challenging his father at all. He could have said something 
at the family house after the play. He could have. It is with some cracks in the foundation, in a sense that, well, Neil still is extremely well-performing student. He hits all the marks that his father sets up to him. So the father disapproving of giving Neil even the acting, even that one bit of, okay, you can have this nice thing that you want as long as it doesn't affect your grades. The father refusing to do that is over-institutionalizing the father, making him so extremely uncompromising in his own points of views that the father comes off somewhat even alienating force in the film. And on top of that, there is also the fact that the father is extremely careful on the way how he and the family is being seen by others. He's someone who gives a multitude of attention to his reputation and the family's reputation. He brings out the point that Neil signing up on the play behind his back has made him a liar. When you take that notion, when you take that much care on how you are actually being perceived by others, and then have the same character forcibly taking your son out of the play, once the season is already running, once the play has already, you know, started to run, and he has been tied to be the main actor in the play, Neil now has the responsibility of making the role night after night. Dragging Neil away from the theater at that point and sending him away to the military academy would actually be something that would be perceived as taking back on your word. It would be seen very negatively by everybody else in the community that the father and Neil are part of. In that sense, the father refusing Neil to stay on the play and stay on the theater group to see the season and see the showings through is kind of a, the father shooting himself in the foot it's the classical case, Henrik, where the father takes the role of controlling his son as his own little Tamagotchi. I will command completely and take control over your future because of my failings in life. Yeah, and that kind of a contrast also to the school of the film. Because there, there is the running theme of the elder male authorial figures. The teachers in the school and now Neil's father in home. Absolutely. Yeah, all of them refusing to actually listen to the youngsters, the younger generation, and everybody deciding for the youngsters what they do and how they do and why they do. In many ways, the school, the teachers in the school and the principal makes the point that the school's focus is not to teach the youngsters to be free-thinking individuals, and the niece father is actually pulling off the same stunt at home. I could understand very well the indifference, apathy, negligence for the decision of Neil to join the movie business in the 1950s when uh, movie business was still kind of a relatively new form of entertainment or work. But we're talking about the 
theater here, which should not be a big deal at all. And it's part of the things that you can do in this very respected and affluent school. So what the hell is the problem of this father? Yeah, it's never actually mentioned what what is the father's main gripe against the theater. And he has with great effort, great effort, Henry got Neil into the school. And then he he shows his anger towards Robin Williams's character Keating right there. That you shouldn't be talking to my son. Get the hell away from my son, you teacher that I paid for. It's kind of like a social suicide one after the other. First taking the social heat of dragging your son out of the theater play that is correctly running and suffering that way and then publicly yelling at a teacher. Well, Neil kind of turns off the whole seize the day stuff and kills himself. Or, well, he did seize the day in his own way, I suppose. Which became his last. And thought gets info that Neil is dead. But at least Neil did not live to suffer not making the decision. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, that that was, you know, the whole main concept of the seizing the day. You should seize the day so that you won't live your life thinking about, oh yeah, I should have actually tried that when I had the chance. Why didn't I choose this? <laughs> oh god. Dangerous waters, Henrik. And then... Todd gets the info that Neil is dead. It's one of the most emotional moments, if not the most emotional moment of the film. Even the teacher cries his head off over Todd, reading the book of the Dead Poet Society that he, I believe he wrote those pages with the notes and kind of seeing the irony of the moment. Not very much seizing the day in that sense. And there's the memorial event. Thorough investigation will be made. Boys talk about who will be the scapegoat. And Cameron has ratted everyone out. Thanks Cameron. And then there are the interrogations. The kind of a police interrogation internally in the school. Kind of funny. But that's what the parents want. And that's what happens. And then they're made to sign some weird paper. By force. Yeah, they are forced to sign a pre-written statement mm-hmm. on how the suicide was Keating's fault or a result of the ideas that Keating was giving to the students. And everybody feels very morose, Henrik, about the signing of the paper, but they really had no choice. I have to give it to them, given the information that they have been given. In which moment we got to the final scene. When Robin Williams' character Keating visits his office for the one last time to collect his belongings. And he starts to walk out of the class. And Todd, just given everything that he has learned from Keating during this film. It's the final character development moment of Todd. And he raises on his table... To show that he will stand with O Captain, my captain, later being joined by the other members of the DPS. It's very powerful, and I cannot really say at the end of the day 
that this would be an over-Americanized, over-emotionalized scene. It's a scenario that is believable. I can buy it. It is a good scene. It does give the film kind of a bittersweet, happy ending, as, as you typically get in these type of films. Especially when the narrative structure is on the more realistic side. It is on the more realistic side, yeah. It shows that not everybody at all is standing up. There's plenty of students who stay on their seats. Yeah, and it shows that in a way, even though in a way Keating does win the institution by turning those few students into free-thinking individuals and this way breaking them out of the flat-heading mentality of the institution. The institution still triumphs over Keating by making him the scapegoat. It does, and there's a lot of questions in the air. Now, what happened at the end? So the institution was one, the free-thinking one, or was it just that the carpe diem one? I guess it's all three of those. Hmm. Who won? The students won, especially Todd won. He overcame his fear of performing, standing up for himself, standing up for others as well, not being afraid of showing what he thinks. And especially, this is a good point, because that's especially what Neil was unable to do. And kind of for his friend, I think he is giving this one. Like, I can do this, at least now, for you. My dear friend. Yeah, that, that that's a good point, actually. Now that you bring it up. In the ending of, of the film, Todd manages to rise above Neil in the sense that he indeed does find the courage to stand up against the person of the authority. Yeah, it, it, it kind of takes one death to get there, but they do get there, finally. Yeah, it does. The original ending of this film in the script was as follows, that the boys show up for the class and the teacher is not there and they find out that the teacher is in hospital. They go to see Mr. Keating and he has a Hodgkin's lymphoma and that explains the whole carpe diem. Peter Weir, the director, then convinced they need to change the ending. He simply wanted to remove the part about the cancer. Why? Because it's easy for the kids to stand up for a guy with cancer. But if the carpe diem just comes from who he is, then we know that the boys stand up for his ideas rather than his illness. So I think that was a fantastic change. It, it was, it was. It, I am with Weir on that one. Yeah. Even the scriptwriter came around in that and, and kind of said, like, fuck, you're right, we have to change this. That's Dead Poet Society, Henrik. A, a film that, despite its name, really doesn't have any dead poets in it. Yeah, it is kind of easy to take the wrong image from this title. And that gives us a nice bridge to the quick categories. Are you ready? Why not? Well, are you gonna go first with the favorite performance? My take here, and 
I'm not sure if you're gonna have a different one, but I pick Robert Sean Leonard as Neil Perry. This typically goes to Robin Williams for the role as Keating, but I, I think that Leonard did have more range in, in his performance. The script gave him more chances to go from one end of the emotional spectrum to the other. I think that Leonard made terrific job. He gave a role that merits you eight seasons in playing next to Hugh Laurie in, in House. Good God. That guy must be a pain in the ass in the real world as well. Hugh Laurie or Robert Sean Leonard? Hugh Laurie. I, I come to understand that he's a really swell guy in real life. Okay, good to know. <laughs> you you do know that in, in films and TV they do play roles. Like, oh. They, they are not themselves on the screen. A revelation. <laughs> a Thank revelation. You all the things you learn in while making a film podcast. But when it comes to the favorite performance of that poet society, Todd Anderson comes really close to the spot played by Ethan Hawke. Uh, there may be moments. There may be moments where he kind of doesn't have enough of an illusion as Neil Perry's character. Ethan Hawke is excellent in playing the kind of a scared kid. But Robert Sean Leonard has more range, as you said, and I think he pulls all of those ranges kind of perfectly with flying colors. So, okay, I will go with Robert Sean Leonard with you. Favorite scene? In my end, I guess it's uh, the find your own work scene. I kind of love the scene where Neil and Todd are at the rooftop and... They throw Todd's birthday present from the parents away. There is the moment of improvisation, and it feels like a very good bonding scene. It's it's genuinely funny, and I think the laugh of Todd at the end of the scene, well, it sounds very honest. It sounds real. It's it's very easy-flowing scene, especially when taking into account that these are two young actors improvising. On the say or on the scene, and it kind of shows in 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 the perfect way. Sounds natural. That it does. That it does. There's somehow there is not that stiffness in it that yep. often comes on with the improvisation, especially seeing how long the scene is. Favorite quote. I guess I will go with with Robin Williams's speech about poetry. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of human race and human race is filled with passion. I don't know. I think it was an important scene where Knox comes back to the school and explains to his friend that he did go to the school of Chris and did all this romantic stuff for her. And he's asked, by his colleagues that, hey, how did it go? Did you read it to her? Yeah, wow, what did she say? Nothing, nothing, what do you mean nothing? Nothing, but I did it. Well, what did she say? She had to say something. Hey, Knox, seize the day. And that's what this film is about. Favorite kill? Well, I guess it's no surprise. I, I go with Neil. Mm, 
There were some good contenders, but I will go with Neil as well. Yeah, it's hard to pick your favorite on the core fest. That was the film. True that. My dear co-host, and random confusing question. Do you seize today, Henrik? Did I ask this already? But do you seize today? Every now and then. Not that often. Or I live with a, a lot of boundaries. A lot of, you know, keeping myself in check. I did really seize the day once. And <laughs> it didn't end that well. Did you ever meditate? Mm, only with a bottle of scotch. <laughs> How was it? Well, the scotch was cheap and the meditation was, well, after a point, it was pretty, pretty nice. First image that comes to mind. I guess it's that moment when Todd is running in the snow after hearing about Neil's suicide. I'm, I'm trying to clear that image now, now from my, my mind. That's kind of distracting my first image here. Okay, reset button, reboot. Let's see. What do we have here? Eh, I guess it's just Robin Williams giving a lecture in the class. Nothing very exciting here. Which is a good portion of the film. Which image best exemplifies that Boyd society? No, I would say the moment when Keating is giving the lecture and standing on the desk. That is some of the everlasting images. What took you out of DPS? Nothing really. I... I was kind of a clue on with the film from the get-go. Yeah, I, I would say nothing. There was nothing. Even though partly the film is easy to criticize for some small aspects, like, for example, Neil's father, but even in those instances, it is very small things. It is not strong enough to pull you out of the film. Yeah, the scriptwriter Tom Schulman was really afraid when he was watching the film in the theater with the audience that everybody would start running away, walking away from the film after they have kind of killed their main character at that point. And it wasn't even such of a strong motivated kill as it was in the script in the sense that where he, where the father just dragged him in the middle of the performance out of the theater. Now here he gets to do his performance, go home, and then he does the suicide. But the audience did accept it. Even though I, I could see that uh, Neil could have had plenty of options, it's, well, everybody has options. So did Neil. As far as you can tell. Like, you could even say that Robin Williams had options, but it's all not that simple all the time. Am I not right? I guess, I guess you are. Actually, really not taking your bait and touching this subject matter on this episode. <laughs> yeah, Neil could have just walked away, challenged his father, say, fuck you, I'm going to finish the studies in this school, and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, I don't know all the logistics involved here or legalities, but uh, that's what I would have pulled off. Then again, Neil's father is portrayed as a character that is very hard to stand up against. Yeah, and if the budget for going through the school at all is coming periodically from his father, then there is no options for Neil. What pulled you in? 
The first lecture that Keating gives to the students, showcasing the, the old photographs of the previous students that have gone through the Velmont Academy. That did give me chills right away. I should highlight that scene in some sense, so I'm going to go with the same scene. Simply hijacking your likes. Strongest act, one, two, three. It kind of depends on where you draw the line with the end of the second act. Do you draw it after or before Neil's suicide? Where does the third act start? I would say it starts when the school hearings have been finished or something like that. In in that case, I I would go with the second act, even though... In, in this case, drawing the line of the third act in, or the beginning of the third act after the school hearings, the, the third act does get that strong moment with Keating being noted by his students and that whole standing, oh captain, my captain scene. But the second one still does carry over Neil's suicide. And I, I guess that's that kind of a, is the strongest moment of the film. Okay. For me the strongest moment is the final scene and with that I'm forced to go with the third act. And why? Because it's emotionally very strong. And why? Because fuck you it is. Um, the most exciting moment. Really hard to pick on a film that has so much going on in it but maybe the kids sneaking out to the old Indian cave for the first time. When they reinvigorate the dead poet society. I suppose it's the reaction of Todd to the death of Neil. You really see how much Todd care about him. SOS, Scissors of Sacrilege, what would you change? I wouldn't touch the film. Yeah, no reason. Yeah, it hold itself together strong enough so that I can't find any individual thing. Or point out something in the movie which I could say that is done poorly and should be changed in order to make the film a stronger experience. It's sign of a good package right here. I can't think of anything as well. And you really know you're watching Dead Poets Society when... You get your tongue tied by the English dialogue, which is <laughs> extremely complicated and varied in some scenes. Mm. You really know you're watching the Dead Boy Society when you kind of think that it's Harry Potter, but it's set in American school and there is no hocus pocus involved. Three adjectives to describe the film. Warm, poetic and a bit sour. <laughs> poetic. Heartbreaking, rebellious. <coughs> also known as unorthodox. Yeah, because you are either an orthodox or you aren't. Did you look at your watch? Nope, not once with this film. Nah, yeah. When was the last time you saw this film? It has been years for me. I did originally see this film on behest of my mother who recommended it to me. Good going. Yeah, but altogether it has been ages since I last seen Dead Poet Society. I have to admit that when I was in primary school, and that this was all still the time when you only had VHS players basically in the school, and these tiny little pan scan sized CRT televisions, 
in use in this small upper corner of the classroom which everybody would be gazing at and I think that whole feel kind of lessened my experience of the film and not to mention that I did have kind of a attention span of five seconds during those years so I'm, I'm not surprised if I didn't really think of much of anything about the film at the time. Something I also have come to notice is that if if you watch these films, these enlightened individual against the institution storylines in school, in a class, because your teacher has decided to, that today is the VHS day, <laughs> and he decides to show you one of these films, usually that does very much hurt the experience. At least for me, because I, I always take the notice that Okay, yeah, this is once again the film about an enlightened teacher who somehow goes against the school institution itself in favor of his or her students and gains the students' respect through being kind of a radical in her way of teaching or in what he or she teaches to the students and manages to, in the end, make the students become better persons because he or she manages to coach them to become free thinkers and, once again, be individuals instead of someone who simply follows the norms. And when your teacher gives you this this film experience, you immediately kind of go like, oh yeah, yeah, I can see, I can tell why this film... Why you, as a teacher, think so highly about the film in question? And at the same time, you're kind of devaluing your own platform. <laughs> so... That also, that also. But, yeah, during those teenage years, whenever a teacher would play any kind of VHS, then you would kind of put on the looking glass that this is some kind of a propaganda or something boring. And now at a later age, you can truly try to finally respect these type of films. At least on my part. And in a way, it is also a, a bit of a shame. It is, it because, is, Henry. Yeah, because not, not all films that you were shown back then were automatically bad. But at, at the same time, you know, the viewing experience is being hurt <laughs> by you recognizing the fact that which teacher would not like to be compared to, well, Mr. Keating. Or Mona Lisa Smiles, Catherine and Watson. Those characters are kind of a teacher wish fulfillment. Would you recommend Dead Poet Society? I would. I, I would most definitely recommend Dead Poet Society, but it does come with a small asterisk at the end. Because, like I said, the narrative that Dead Poet Society has is something that you most likely already, if, if you are a bit film consumer, you have already seen, you have already experienced the story in some form or the other. I guess already you've seen two or three films that has more or less the story of the Deadpool Society, and it's kind of an effect of that this is one of those stories that Hollywood simply loves to tell. Yeah, it, it's an easy topic for everybody to relate to. And easy topic to sell yeah. your audiences, because who wouldn't want to be the free-thinking radical individual in any institution, 
in anywhere where you face authority in one way or the another. They are stories that easily give a lot of range for the director, for the actors, to the sound design, to play on their strongest parts, get those tears rolling. They are films that say a lot about the individual and about being a free thinker and at the same time don't say that much because they never actually truly take the hammer to the institution and truly attack against the institution. It's a, there are films that are very easy for a director to get interested about and get enthusiastic about and at the same time films that are very easy for the producers to produce. Because both parties can kind of make the film and walk out of the experience with their heads held high. So with that in mind, if this storyline is not already coming out of your ears, if you are not entirely tired of seeing this type of story, I would most definitely recommend Dead Poets Society to you. Because it still is a classic film, it's very well made movie. It hits all the high marks that you are supposed to hit with this type of story. And it is better examples. It is most definitely better examples showcasing how to tell this storyline. But there, of course, there is the risk that if you come to Dead Poets Society today, you kind of re- recognize that you have already seen Dead Poets Society. I guess it depends what you have seen. Have you seen something before Dead Poets Society was released or after Dead Poets Society released? I guess that's one point that is important when you give value or devaluate Dead Poets Society and its contributions to the cinema. It is. And also it is important to kind of ponder what type of films altogether you have been watching. It is an interesting flick in the sense that it challenges authority and I guess I'm kind of overthinking this once again, but uh, challenging authority all the time is not something beneficial. But when it's something that challenges some age-old rules and habits that you have had for ages and you want to break free and change the system for the better that's great and there will always be hardship around the fact that you're trying to do something new and i think that's what the dead poet society is about it's not about completely disregarding the system completely disregarding the 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 50s system and curriculums and just doing free flow whatever the hell you want it's about i guess this modern kind of approach to teaching the modern kind of approach to remembering to seize the day and i'm on board with all of that there are no snooze points in the film and all the characters involved in the dead poet society support the overarching point which is shown to be Carpe Diem. And it's a very emotional moment in the end, which kind of shows that you you can embrace the new, but kind of respect the old still. I think it's not going hyperbole in any direction. Yeah, it ain't. I would recommend Dead Poets Society. I was partly expecting you to not give Dead Poets a recommendation. 
You know, Henrik, today I'm just in a weird mood and I just might sound funny, but I do like the film a lot. <laughs> we can always blame it on the wine, if you want to. <laughs> well, it's an interesting substance, Henrik. In one episode, it might give completely different results. Um, as far as I know, there are no thought figurines made of, out of this movie or video games. Could be a very interesting try, though. There, however, has been a stage play. Oh. Made out of the story, and there is the Asanal sketch, Farewell, Mr. Ponting, which pokes fun at the end of the film with the students standing on their desks. <laughs> Gotta see that one. It's an it's an okay sketch. Basically, the joke is that one of the students gets decapitated by a ceiling fan when standing on his desk, and the, you know the overall gore reaction to that moment. For the love of God! There was one analysis from an English literature student who said that the poem mentioned in the film, "The Road Not Taken" by Robert Frost has been misinterpreted in the film by Robin Williams's character and that it's not so much exactly about rebellion or finding kind of a new path for something and new but it's more complicated than that that's where she left it we can ponder it here the poem is two roads diverged in a yellow wood And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same and both that morning equally lay In leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on the way, I doubted if I should ever come back. In this podcast, that's me. Um, I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. End poem. And I think we are not any smarter after this one. Yeah, not necessarily. But the tricky part with poems is that there is so many ways to interpret them. So it it kind of becomes a nightmare trying to choose what is the right way to read any given poem. Some extra challenge for us Finns who do not speak English as native language, reading old, very old poems in English. I guess it's valid at the end to talk about my new friend at my hostel. Yeah, he's from Poland. He has been... Uh, he has a terminal cancer. He will die in six to eight months and he knows it. He has enjoyed his life all the way through, has traveled a lot, enjoyed the life with a smile on his face. Carpe diem! And he still lives by that. He's one of the happiest individuals that I have seen. And it is genuine. And for a moment there, when listening to this guy, you reach 
a point where you kind of the kind of reality hits you that yeah life is not really that serious almost in any way i think we should take a little bit of a light-hearted approach to it and really try to be more brave face situations face people invite the girl of your dreams for a cup of coffee or whatever the social situation might be go for it this is not going to last forever not even this goddamn podcast you can find us on facebook instagram twitter and youtube we have a international cinema challenge 2019 running throughout the year where we will watch 20 films delicately handpicked at the laboratory from 20 different countries if you don't want to watch these specific movies with us then you can watch something else just tell us that you have watched 20 films from 20 different countries and at the end of the year or the beginning of 2020 we will invite one of those viewers to our podcast all of you to discuss how the experience was and how you may have grown as an individual because of our extremely incredible challenges especially in finding these films so yes indeed we are starting our very long james bond extravaganza in this podcast so the next the 25th installment in the james bond franchise is going to be released in april 2020 and since me first of all being a huge james bond fan since the age of five or so we most definitely will be looking at some james bond films in this podcast and it's going to be as follows on the last week of each month on thursdays on the last thursday of the month from here on in we will analyze one bond film and the way it's gonna go is also that we have according to our tastes according to our votes selected the so-called best and the worst bond films from each actor who played james bond and we have decided <laughs> here according to me henrik and our james bond episode guest tom that we will look at from russia with love as the best sean connery film next until next week